the foyer. This is, uh, we are about to start the final sermon in this sermon series that we've been doing for the entire school year. And uh, I, partly because we're doing Revelation, there's no more story to tell afterward. And also, um, I'm going to be gone next weekend for a conference, and uh, you can see information about it in your bulletin. It's at Camp Wainema, which is right on the beach. So if you'd like to spend Memorial Day weekend at the beach, this is one way you can do that. And the focus of the Explorers Conference this year is on dual citizenship, meaning how we navigate life as Christians, as citizens of heaven, and as citizens of our nation. And so I'll be one of the speakers talking about what the Bible has to say about um, about uh, believers' roles in politics, and then we'll have a, a historian named Doug Foster, a very uh, excellent historian who's going to be presenting on how Christians throughout history since the church have answered those questions. So if you're interested in being a part of that, I encourage you to register. Uh, as we move into this final episode, as you can tell by the title, we are completing the story that the Bible tells. We've been going from, we started with Genesis in September, and now we've finally reached Revelation today. And I'm going to try and recap that whole story for you before we dig into how the story ends, all right? So re- remember that we've been telling the Bible the story this way. It is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. At every stage in the Bible, that is what God is working to do. Because at the beginning, he created the world, and he put people in us, and he created us for the purpose of ruling over creation on his behalf. Remember last week, I used that metaphor of my kids at the Lego table, and how we gave them the Lego table and all my old Legos so that we could play together and build with it. And that's kind of the image that the, New, that the Old Testament gives us of what God, how God originally made the world. And then he came down to live with us on the seventh day. But the problem is that we don't really like to rule according to God's uh, design. And so instead, we started rebelling against him and setting up our own kingdoms. And, and it resulted in a lot of chaos that we see through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And so then in Genesis 12, God starts his plan to restore his design through a guy named Abraham. And Abraham's family, Israel, becomes an example to the world to show the world what God's design is supposed to look like. So he gives that one people a particular place, the land of Israel, and he comes down to live with them in that place, in the temple, and then he gives them the law of Moses to show them the exact instructions on how they can accomplish their purpose, which is to reveal to the world who God is. So the law of Moses was this very meaningful set of rules that would have exp- the world would have looked at Israel following those rules and living in God's presence, and it would have shown them who God is and what he wants for his people. The problem is that the Israelites weren't any better at following God's designs than the rest of us are, and so they continually failed and built their own kingdoms and, and did everything but rule according to God's will until eventually he sent them into exile to show the world what they're doing is not what I had in mind. As the Jews started to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple, uh, they ultimately ended up learning the wrong lessons from the exile. Because what they learned was that they need to be hyper-focused on meticulously enforcing all of the laws, and that the Gentiles and the lawbreakers are a distraction from that, and we need to exclude them, we need to keep them out, we need to be the holy huddle and just stick to ourselves and, and violently defend the law from other people. 
which is actually the opposite of what the law is for, because the law is meant to show the world who God, who God is and what he wants for his people. And so after about 500 years of them trying to restore their relationship with God by building these walls, both spiritual and literal, as they rebuilt Jerusalem, uh, Jesus appears on the scene, and Jesus announces the kingdom of God is coming which means God is ready to fulfill his plan to accomplish the mission that he had with Israel to restore his design. And he says, repent and believe, mainly meaning that the Jews are going in the wrong direction, and if they want to be a part of what God is doing, they need to change direction, and they need to be God's people in the way that Jesus is teaching them to do. So Jesus goes around, and he teaches this way of being God's people to the Jews, and then ultimately he comes into the temple and, and prompts the Jews to make a choice. Are you going to follow my way, or are you going to follow this, this way of, of keeping everybody at arm's length and violently defending the law? The Jews choose to reject Jesus' message, and they hand him over to the Romans, and the Romans kill him. But then in the resurrection, Jesus returns to life, to this new eternal life. And what that shows is, number one, Jesus was right all along about how we are supposed to go about being God's people. Number two, it shows that he really is the leader of God's people. And number three, it shows that his death really did deal with the sins of the world so that God can forgive us and still let the world know that he's not okay with sin, right? That it's not that he's just decided sin isn't a big deal, but he has dealt with sin through the death of Jesus. So then Jesus ascends, and the Holy Spirit comes down onto the Jewish believers, showing that they are the true people of God. They are the ones that are truly being faithful to God and carrying out his design. And they begin to build these communities, this community in Jerusalem, that is exactly what the law of Moses always had in mind. It was exactly the kind of community that God wants people to live in. But that provokes the Jewish leaders to persecute them, which scatters the Jews into the known world. And then something truly amazing happens. As they travel throughout the known world, people from other nations who are not Jews, who are never part of this, this, uh, this design of God or this plan, start turning to him and start following Jesus and following his way. And what they realize is that God is reuniting humanity in the church. The church isn't just the new Israel. The church is the new Israel and the new nations being united together as one people. And then last week we saw how the, last, the end of Acts sets the story on this launching point as Paul reaches Rome and is building a church right under the nose of Caesar. And we see that the gospel has the potential to begin spreading all across the world and uniting people from all over. And that is where the baton is handed off to the next generation of believers. And it's kind of a dot, dot, dot. And, and it's, the baton is handed off generation after generation until it has been handed off to all of you who are followers of Jesus. And that's where the story before us ends. But God doesn't just leave them in the Bible with, here's the baton, now figure out what to do with it. The book of Revelation plays a key role in the handing off of that baton because it teaches the following generations of believers where the course is going to go. It shows them where the finish line is. Because if you're going to be in a race, if someone just walked up to you on the street and handed you a baton, would you know what to do with it? No, you got to know where the, what's, where's the race course, where's the finish line, what's the goal, should I be sprinting or jogging, you know, is this a 100 meter or a, you know, a marathon? And so the book of Revelation, it tells the church where they're headed, what to look out for, and where the finish line is. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to start by reading the introduction to the book of Revelation, which is a very unique kind of book. It's an apocalypse, which we don't really have modern apocalypses. We don't write in this way anymore. So we're going to read the introduction, and we're going to get our bearings from there. We're going to look for our coordinates. Remember that as we read a story, we want to watch for who are God's, who's the story about, what is their, where is their home, how can they meet with God, and what did God tell them to do? We're going to be watching for those, and we want to answer those questions as we launch into the story of Revelation. Here's how it starts. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that is ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you have seen and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash across his chest. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, so who is this story about? Jesus is about to tell a story, and this is the introduction. Who is that story going to be about? It is going to be about Jesus and the seven churches. This is very important as we read, whenever you read a book of the Bible, recognize who's it written by, who's it written to, what is the context. And this letter is written to seven churches in seven cities, okay? So these are real churches that really existed at the time that really received this letter and read it as addressed to them, and it has meaning for them. Now beyond that, we should recognize, first of all, there's meaning in the fact that he chose seven cities, He probably could have chosen more. Seven is the number of completeness, which would have been an indicator that the message of this is not restricted to just those seven letters. The fact that it's in the Bible also tells us that the message is not restricted to those seven churches, because I'm sure they wrote a lot more letters than we have in the Bible, but the ones that were just to that church, those are the ones that didn't make it. Those are the ones that they didn't put in the Bible. But this this book also has significance for the church. But it's important to remember that its primary significance is to those seven churches. So it has to mean something to them. Sometimes with Revelation, we act as if it only will matter to the last generation, and the rest of us are just holding on to it until then. But the book of Revelation matters to every generation, but primarily the first. Now, where is their home? Their home is in Asia, which for us is a huge continent, but it, back then, it was uh, this part of the Roman Empire. It was where Turkey is. Okay? So that's what they mean by Asia. If we zoom in on Asia, the seven churches that we're talking about are right here. So these seven churches are in a very specific place. 
They're actually very near the island of Patmos, which is just off the coast there. So where is their home? For these Christians, their home is Asia, because that's where they live. But remember that at this point in the story, the agenda of the, God's plan is to restore his design to the whole world, because the church can be anywhere where there are believers. And so the ultimate agenda of the church at this stage is the world. He just is writing to churches who have been uh, given the fields of Western Asia to till in. Now, how can they meet with God? Well, this passage gives us a really cool image of that, as you see Jesus walking among the lampstands, and the lampstands are the, uh, the lampstands are the churches. That's the symbolism. He, Jesus says, lampstands are churches. So Jesus is walking among the churches when John first sees him, which reminds us that the presence of God is in the church. That the presence of God is in Christians. There isn't a temple, the one location on earth where you can go, but any place where there are groups of believers, any place where there is a believer, you can, the presence of God is with them. And as the believers gather, there is a special emphasis on the church and the lampstand, that, that that's where you can encounter. So God had never been, before, before the New Testament, there had, God's presence had never specially been in Turkey, Right? The place where it had been, there was Sinai, and there's Eden, and there's Jerusalem. But now, all of a sudden, any city where there's a church, God's presence is there. And it can spread over the entire world. Now, lastly, what does Jesus tell them to do? Now, we didn't read the passage where Jesus tells them what to do, because actually what follows is Jesus dictates seven letters, one to each city, to tell them what to do. But there are certain things that those letters have in common, and they set us up to understand what's coming in the the visions, the story that John will tell. Because the common thing that each one of them talks about is Jesus talks about the one who will be victorious. And there's one particular passage where he explains what it means to be victorious. It says, To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. So, the one who is victorious will be the one who rules, which is being restored to God's plan. That's what human beings are made for, right? And to be victorious means what? Doing the will of Jesus to the end. So the mission, the, the, the mission that the church has been given here is to remain faithful to Jesus and his will. The rest of the story of Revelation will be tied around the mission of Jesus to restore the kingdom and the mission of the church to stay faithful to Jesus. Now, telling, doing Revelation in one sermon is tricky. And the reason is because Revelation is an apocalypse. An apocalypse is a kind of book that we don't have anymore. We do not have a modern version of apocalypse. And it can seem really complicated to us because we are more rationalistic than the ancient world was. Apocalypses are meant to reveal the true nature of the world and of the course of history to God's people through imagery. It's kind of like a special effects movie. It uses big, powerful images to get a point across. And it actually uses repeated images. So one of the things that when you read Revelation, sometimes you'll end up with, have you seen those huge charts that have all these different things? Like there's, there's like all these different events that'll happen over this amount of time. And there's, there's going to be these seven things and these seven. That's not actually how Revelation works. If you look at every other apocalypse in the Bible, they will give you multiple visions to make the same point. 
And John is doing the same thing. There's, there's, the, uh, there's the seven seals that get broken and events that happen there. And there's the seven um, trumpets that get blown and then the seven bowls. And if you notice, each one of those sets of seven ends the exact same way. And they summarize the same images. So that's not 21 things that happen. It's John making the same point three times. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick one of the times that John makes this point about what the Christians are to expect because it's the one that has the most character development and the most narrative because it works for, we're telling the story. But this is really the, the main message of Revelation is to get this message across, these expectations across with repeated imagery. So we've already introduced the first, ma- the first major characters, Jesus and the churches. So we're going to jump into Revelation 12 and introduce another main character. Another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. All right, this is only the third time, I think, maybe fourth, in this series that we've talked about Satan. Because he doesn't actually come up in the Bible as much as you might think. And what we find is that the story that the Bible is telling is not, or the story the Bible tells about Satan is not the one that we're most familiar with, which is actually heavily influenced by pagan mythology. The Bible tells the story of Satan. In the Old Testament, Satan is God's prosecutor. He is the divine agent who's in charge of making sure that everybody gets punished to the full extent of the law. That's what he's doing in Job. That's what he's doing in Zechariah. And that, that's his role, is to punish people, to make sure they get punished. And that makes him ultimately an obstacle to God forgiving his people because Satan, the accuser, doesn't want them to be let off because that wouldn't be punishing them to the full extent. And so what we see in this passage is we see that Satan, um, Satan is thrown out of heaven. It's important to recognize when this happens. It happens as a result of the ministry of Jesus. It's not before, it's not before uh, creation or before Adam and Eve. It is at the, the, during the ministry of Jesus. And notice it says when he's thrown down that now the kingdom of, of God has come. Satan is thrown out of heaven because there's no place for someone to accuse God's people when they've been finally forgiven by Jesus. But now he's in the earth and he's angry and he's opposed to God's people. That's a, that serpent image. It, the, the Greek words there refer back to the Leviathan which was this monster in the Old Testament who uh, was opposed to God's people. And, and it talks about God you know, destroying Leviathan when he destroys the enemies of his people. So this is, this is a spiritual force that opposes God's people that is real and active in the world. So the first thing that this, this set of stories is telling us is that there is a spiritual force at work in the world that opposes God's people. And it opposes God's plan to forgive his people. 
Now, this spiritual force, it has minions. But the minions that we normally think of are the little devil guys that sit on your shoulder and tell you to cheat on your taxes and that kind of stuff. You know, like they argue with the angel and, and they're, or like the screw tape letter stuff. I love the screw tape letters, but that's ten, the, what we tend to think of is like the tempter demon is the main minion. The Bible has almost nothing to say about those kinds of demons. Almost nothing. The minions that the book of Revelation calls out are very different. They're beasts. Here's the first beast. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Now here's where we have to talk a little bit about how we read Revelation and what Revelation is meant to do. One of the ways that we misread Revelation is when we think that it is a code, that that Revelation encodes the truth, and we have to decode it to figure out what it's saying. So the idea is like there's some hidden truth about some future being that is going to arrive, um, and we're supposed to decode the passage so that we know who it is. So like Martin Luther would have said, I can decode this passage to tell me that the beast is the pope. And um, people throughout American history have found ways to decode it to say that the current president is the beast. Every president has been accused of being the beast. Uh, And and that's what what we often think is that it is an encoded truth that we have to decode. The problem is that then the truth of God is only accessible if I'm smart enough, right? Then my wisdom becomes part of revealing the truth of God. That's not actually how apocalypse worked. In Apocalypse, the vision itself was the revelation because there would have been no question to the original audience reading this letter who the beast is. The imagery is not subtle. It's the Roman Empire. The beast is the Roman Empire. If you decode the images there, it's very, very obvious that he's referring to the Roman Empire, especially since describing it as a beast points back to the visions of Daniel where he describes the empires that ruled over Israel as a series of beasts. So as soon as you say beast, people who are familiar with the Bible think empires. So it's very clearly the Roman Empire. So here's the point. The point isn't that the beast encodes Rome's identity, because that's obvious. The point isn't to say, oh, the beast is actually Rome. The point is for the audience to say, oh, Rome is actually a beast. That's the revelation for them to recognize that this force that they encounter every day is, in truth, a beast that opposes God. And as you see the things that the beast does, you see the ways in which the Roman Empire, at that time, opposed God. So so what he's actually revealing is that this political entity, this empire that is trying to control their lives and is trying to make them uh, devote their lives to the Roman Empire, that is a beast that is opposed to God. There's a second minion as well. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. 
The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Again, this is another place where we speculate. What, what is the circle going to be? And what is the mark of the beast going to be? Are we going to get barcodes on our hands, on our foreheads? Because the first, middle, and last number of every barcode is six, which is a little, little creepy. right? Is that what's going to happen? That's not how they would have read this because these people already encountered the mark of the beast. They already encountered what's being described here. Because in the Roman Empire, it's hard for us to understand just how much religion was involved, the worship of the gods was involved in the Roman culture. If you were a Roman citizen, your family had a god or a set of gods that you were expected to worship, or if you were a slave, you were supposed to worship the gods of your family. If you were, let's say, a stonemason, there was a god of stonemasons that you were supposed to worship when you got together with the guild. There was a god of your city. There was a god of the empire. The emperor himself was a god. These Every facet of your life would have involved worshiping gods at some point. When you went to buy food, most of the meat had been sacrificed to idols before it was sold. Like it's, this is part of everything. And so they experienced a daily reality where you have, to, you have to participate with the religion and the culture of the time just in order to be able to buy and sell at the marketplace. Right? Worshiping the gods was the cost of participating in Roman society. And so this second beast, what it describes is all of these cultural and social and economic systems that, that pressure people to be... To, to, cons- to, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, to conform to this culture, to this society. Because it's not just the political um, person, it's not just the threat of being executed that pressures people to give up their faith, but it's also the social and economic pressures. It's the fact that you can't succeed as much in your job. You may be ostracized by your family. There's all these other things that happen to pressure people to give up the faith. And so what these images are meant to show us is that the political, economic, and cultural forces of this world tend to be beasts that demand our worship and loyalty. And it is because they demand our worship and our loyalty that they are beasts. It's not, not necessarily um, what the rhetoric they use or uh, what their stated goals. It's, it's when, whenever anything tries to push our loyalty away from God, it is behaving as a beast. And these passages are meant to open our eyes to that reality, that there are beasts in the world. There's the most troubling part of this passage of chapter 13 is uh, the length that God will allow these beasts to go to. Because we might hope that God is going to defeat the beasts every time they rear their head. That God's just going to you know, play, you know that, that game at the arcade with the, the alligators, and you have to smack them, now I'm angry, you know, okay. It's maybe just a my generation thing. Um, it's like, like we want God to do that, to just smack down the, emperor, the empire whenever it arises, to smack down the enemies whenever they come up. But Revelation specifically tells the churches that's not what's going to happen. This is talking about the first beast. It says, The beast was given the mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. 
This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. What it's saying is that God is allowing these beasts to do what they are trying to do. He is giving them room. He is not going to smack them down. He is not going to defeat them yet. Why? Well, Peter tells us that God is waiting to to bring Jesus back in order to leave time for repentance. Repentance is a choice for us to return to God. And if we have the choice to return to God, then we have the choice not to, right? Which means that we have the choice to serve the beasts and to serve the dragon. And so there is this time period in which God wants to bring as many people as possible to the gospel. And that does mean allowing uh, that God will allow the beasts of the world to oppose and persecute the church. So how do we accomplish our mission? How do we help in the goal of bringing people to Christ in this time that we have before Jesus returns? Well, I'll tell you what the most satisfying thing to tell you would be. I really wish I could tell you that we are supposed to go out and be dragon slayers and beast slayers, and we're going to tear them down with our own hands. That's not how the Bible describes the mission of God's people. Here's one of the many places where the Bible describes God's people, where where Revelation describes God's people. This is right after the vision of the beast. It says, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So, so the Lamb is Jesus. The 144,000 are his people. And what does it say about God's people? It says that they are uh, virgins. It says that they've remained blameless. It uses this imagery basically to say that they have resisted the beasts in a way that maintains their integrity, that they have stayed faithful to God. Right? They have not given in to the pressures of the dragon or the beast. But you know the interesting thing that, that about this army? It never goes into battle. Nowhere in Revelation does this army go into battle. In fact, it's usually all that's done is it's described like this, as having kept itself pure, as having resisted the pressures of the dragon and the beast, and then the story just moves on. Because this is not a dragon-slaying army. How does this army win the battle? Well, it's actually, the interesting thing is at this point, they have already won. If we rewind and we look at what the, the voice says when the dragon is thrown down to earth, I skipped over part of it. Here's what it says. It says, They, the saints, have triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. How did they triumph? They didn't kill the beast. The beast is still around. You can actually see this. Daniel has the same vision where the fourth beast tries to kill people and, and they don't actually win until the, the one like a son of man sets up their own. Read Daniel 7, same thing. But the point is that they win simply by enduring with integrity, enduring the persecutions of the beasts and the dragon and staying true to God's word. The church triumphs over the beast by remaining faithful to the way of Jesus in the face of persecution. Because if the point of that gap in time is to bring as many people to the gospel as possible, then what people, and if God is in control the whole time, he, it's only because he says so that the beast is allowed to be active at all, 
then what people need is not someone to defeat the beast ahead of God's plan. What they need is people to point them to the gospel. Right? They need people to show them who the beasts are and to show them that God is actually in charge. Because ultimately, our job is through the way we behave, through the way we interact with the powers of this world, to show them that we know that those beasts are already defeated. We know that their intimidation is not worth giving into. We know that their seduction is not worth giving into because they can't actually win in the end. So that means if we're with God, then they can't defeat us. And if we're with them, then we can't win. So we testify to the world through how we respond to the powers and how we stay true to the message of God that Jesus has already won. That the beasts and the dragon are living on borrowed time. Because ultimately, the beasts and the dragon do get defeated. But it's not by us. It's not by the earthly army. It's not by the church. In Revelation 19, it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider and the horse on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. See, at some point, there, there has to come a time when our option to choose ends. Because if that never happens, then God's good design is never restored. At some point... God has to have the final word. And when that time comes, Jesus will return and defeat the forces that oppose his plan once and for all. The forces that distort this world, that make it into something other than God's design, that that lead the world in rebellion against him, that will all get defeated to pave the way for the restoration of God's design. And that's what we see in some of the most beautiful imagery in the Bible right here at the end of the story. Because another thing that we often imagine wrong is we imagine that the goal of the Bible, the story ends with us going to heaven. That's not how the story ends. Because remember, the point is about, the point of God's plan is the place where God's people live out their purpose in his presence. The story ends not with us going to heaven, but with heaven returning to earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. There's the place. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now with people, and he will dwell with them forever. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's presence. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. 
I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb, lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings, of the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. That's people. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So ultimately, God's presence will return to the earth, and he will fully and finally restore his design to the world. And John goes to great lengths to demonstrate that the story has come full circle, that everything humanity has done to destroy the, the design and to destroy the garden has failed because we end up right back in the garden. Look at how he continues to describe it. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation, nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. The, the tree, the river, those are all Eden images. And here's how the story ends. Here is the last sentence of the story of the Bible. There's a few verses after this, but this is the last time you see humanity in the story of the Bible. And they will reign forever and ever. The way we might say it now is they reigned happily ever after. But notice that humanity is right back in the position they were supposed to be at the beginning. That the goal of humanity is not simply to just sit on a cloud and play harps and sing songs for eternity, but to reign. Personally, what I, I see our eternal existence as just a perfected version of our current existence, which is funny because what that reminds me is that I'm the one who's going to have to get retrained. I think in the new earth, there's going to be, there's going to be farmers, there's going to be architects, there's going to be construction workers, there's going to be people doing all kinds of useful things. You know the people who won't be useful? The pastors. I'm going to have to get retrained. I'm going to have to go to New Jerusalem Community College and get some skills so I can be useful in the new earth. Because God wants us at that Lego table, playing together, building together, ruling together, in his good creation, and ultimately, that is where we will return. And here's the best part. Here's the best part of this whole story. I think I've said something like this before. No matter how long it takes for Jesus to come back, okay? Let's say it takes him a million years to come back, okay? So that's the amount of time that sin has reigned on the earth and, and reigned over God's good creation. But how long does the restored creation last? Forever, right? What percent of eternity is a million? Zero. It is zero percent. No matter how long it takes for Jesus to return, the amount of time that sin has dominated this world will ultimately end up to be zero percent. Because his plan will be restored and it will endure forever, and that's how the story ends. And it's important for us to know that that's where the story ends because that tells us where the finish line is as we run our race. 
And we learn from the book of Revelation where we're going and what we need to watch out for. So here's the first thing that I want you to learn from Revelation. First of all, there are beasts in the world that work to seduce and intimidate us into giving our loyalty to them instead of Jesus. Now, the ones that try to intimidate us are probably the easier to identify. And the challenge is to not give in to that intimidation, to not give in to whatever it's going to cost you to stay true to the image of God. What's harder to identify is the ones that are trying to seduce us the ones that are trying to tempt us into worshiping them just a little. Especially because today, worship, it's not as obvious. They aren't telling you to go to a temple and and kill a pig. Our ways of worship are much more subtle, and they're harder for us to recognize. But there are beasts out there that we need to watch out for that are trying to pull pull our allegiance away from God, and we need to watch for that. But when we identify those beasts, we need to remember also what our mission is. Because again, the satisfying thing would be to become dragon slayers, right? But the church's mission is not to slay the dragons, but to faithfully witness that Jesus has already defeated them. To try and slay them is to basically agree with them that they have power that needs to be ended. But that's not true. Ultimately, they have no power to change the outcome. And our mission is to testify to the world that that is the case, that Jesus has already won, and whatever power they have is temporary. And so our response to the dragon and to the beast needs to make that clear above all else, that these powers do not and cannot have the final word. Jesus has already won. And knowing that Jesus has already won is what gives us the courage to fulfill that mission because no matter what the beasts do, God will vindicate his people and restore his good design to the world. No matter what they do. Ultimately, because we are Jesus' people and he shares his fate with ours, which means even if you were tortured to death for Jesus' sake, you get the same resurrection he did. We are raised the way he is. So we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to give in. We don't need to be tempted because ultimately anything they can do is temporary and anything they can give us is temporary. The way I explain the book of Revelation to the kids in my youth group, and I'll I'll end with this, is that the book of Revelation teaches us who wins, And it instructs us to choose our side accordingly. God wins. Make sure you're on his side when he does. And I don't mean to say that as we close, God, uh, there are, we believe that every time you hear the gospel, you have an opportunity to respond. And the first and most powerful way you can respond is to give your life to Jesus. And I don't want you to hear just this sense of, oh, you should be terrified of what's coming, so make sure you're on Jesus' side before the bad stuff comes. I think what's more powerful to say is that be on Jesus' side when the good stuff comes. Be on Jesus' side because Where he is taking us is the best place we could go, and the cause that he calls us to serve is the best cause we could serve. It is the best life we could have. Now, I find the joy of what it means to follow Jesus to be far more motivating than what happens if we don't. Either one can motivate, but if you haven't given your life to Jesus, I just want you to know that that decision 
puts you on a path to the greatest joy, the greatest purpose, the greatest meaning that your life could possibly have, and to an eternity as part of his kingdom. And if you've already made that decision, then maybe uh, one of the things that you're called to do in, in taking a next step is to get more involved with a, a community of believers who can talk with you, pray with you, you can grow together. That's what our small groups are for. Or maybe you need an opportunity to start giving back to build the kingdom by serving others in the church or outside the church. You can do that by checking on your connect card and dropping it in one of our new receptacles on the wall. And if you want to be a part of a family that is working to reach this community in every way we can as, uh, as a family to testify to the goodness of God in this place, that is who we as a church are seeking to be. And so if you'd like to uh, find out more, you can sign up for a Connect class on your Connect card. We'll put that together after, after church one Sunday. We'll have some food and we'll talk about who this church is, what we do, and how you can be a part of it. So I'd encourage you to consider making those decisions or whatever else God has put on your heart as we stand and sing our final song. Please sing with us.